Please open the word to 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I desire that then, then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness, with self-control. That is the word of God. Thank you, Darren. Is this on? Can you all hear me? Yes. Hey, welcome and good morning. That song tears my heart. O joy that seekest me through pain, and O love that will not let me go. It's good words, isn't it? Thank you, worship team, your blessing, and thank you, Darren, for reading the passage for today. Good morning to you all. What a beautiful day and a beautiful season. Spring is sprung. We just celebrated Easter a short time ago, and now it's Mother's Day. I hope that all, all of you will be able to celebrate and bless your mothers in some way today. For me, my mother passed some three and a half years ago, and today I will spend time remembering her. <clears throat> I have fond and amazing thoughts of her. But also, today I will get to spend celebrating and rejoicing in the mother of my children and the mother of my bride as well, the grandmother of my children. What a great day that's going to be. Let's open in prayer. Lord God in heaven above, thank you so much for motherhood. That motherhood is your design. It's a beautiful and magnanimous design. I pray God for all the, that for all of us with mothers, God, that we would appreciate and love them today. And God, that not every mother relationship is good. Some are broken and strained. But I pray that you would intercede on behalf of all those relationships. God, and that you would bring beauty and restore beauty to the, to the relationships of children to their mothers. And I pray, God, this morning for all the mothers, the young, the ones in the middle, and the ones that are old, God, that you would smile a beautiful, gracious, and kind smile upon them today, that they would see and know and understand and feel your heart for them and in their role in that today. And God, for those who are not mothers, still so precious and dear in your sight and still so, so part of your plan and with much work to do as we'll see today. So God, I pray that you join with us and help us to understand your word and help us to receive it well and help us, God, I pray, commingle with us by your spirit and bring instruction to our hearts and that we would be good to apply your word to our conduct. And God, that in all in all, that love is paramount and that you be glorified and you be praised. And we pray these things 
In Jesus' name, amen. It never ceases to amaze me how the Lord directs our paths, that we find ourselves here in 1 Timothy on this passage in chapter 2 with no purpose planned beforehand to have these on our cultural holiday of Mother's Day. As the pastors, as we looked into the alignment of the passages a month or two ago, I thought to myself, really? Save through childbirth on Mother's Day? And me? I get to preach this? Wow, he does have a great sense of humor, doesn't he? Oh, I love Mother's Day, though. This cultural holiday, in my opinion, is one that I love, and I love to celebrate it. We all have this in common, don't we? We all have mothers. Mothers and all women fulfill a grand role in the universe to raise and nurture the children. Through young, from birth, through young childhood, when the needs are simple but many, changing diapers and feeding and playing games and teaching and progresses through the years. But it is always the same for a mother. She loves above all else. She sacrifices for the needs of the children. She yearns to see them happy and healthy. She instructs them in the manners of the household. She teaches them spiritual truths and continues to care for them physically, emotionally, and spiritually through all their days. I had a great relationship with my mama. She was the one I could talk to, open up to. She would understand and not judge. She would support me. She believed in me. She trusted me. When things did not go well, she was there always. Through my life, I did not always treat her properly, though. I lied to her at times and likely did not give her all the respect she rightly deserved. And I neglected to show thankfulness and honor to her. I am sure I caused her much grief and pain. Oblivious to her as I would go down my own selfish path. But she would never let on. She was never begrudged against me. She loved me. She was my teacher. She would guide me when I had questions. And when I didn't know what to do or where to go. And when I chose a path, she was there to support it. Okay, she wasn't a perfect saint, but oh man, what would I have done without her? You see, the life of a mother has trouble from the start. From the pains of childbirth, through all the years of childbearing, child rearing, to child launching, and beyond. But in this unique and awesome role, there is great value and great reward. Raising children, fallen children, in a fallen world is a hard path at best and can be heart-wrenching at times. What makes this beautiful and good and fulfilling is that it be done in love with great patience and perseverance, with faith and holiness and self-control, as it says in our passage. This passage on face value is not what you want to teach if you want to win a popularity contest. To our modern ears and in our modern culture, these verses do not sit well with the ladies or the men. Even those who are well-versed in the scriptures, these are some hard words to understand, are they not? At face value, they can tweak us in a bad way or immediately cause us to wonder, what do they mean? Kind of a combination of, wow, that's direct, 
and G. What does it even mean? But as in all cases, his ways are indeed good and beautiful. And in his word, we find truth and freedom and goodness, if we are willing to look for it. Pastors Dan and Chris and Pat have done a great job laying the foundation through the first chapter of First Peter and in the first part of the second chapter. So thankful for these faithful brothers. Thank you, men. To properly understand any passage, and particularly these passages today, we need to have a firm grasp of the immediate context of 1 Timothy and also 2 Timothy, what they're about. They're both written by Paul to his dear brother, Timothy. So let's get started. Paul starts the letter, giving us an immediate window into the main theme and purpose for his writing this letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5, through 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5 through 7 says this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations, rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So this lays the foundation for the book. Ephesus, like other New Testament churches, and even WCC today, was a messy church. It had problems. The main issue here, though, in this church that's being addressed by Paul is the prevalence and impact of false teaching, false doctrines going on in the church. And this was causing conflicts, controversies, and leading to many wrong beliefs and behaviors for the people of God. So in 1 Timothy, Paul puts great emphasis on sound doctrine, mentioning it a number of times. I won't read you all of the, all of the references in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy alone, but I'll give you the scripture references. Sound doctrine is mentioned in verses 1-3, 1-10, 4, 6, 4, 16, 5, 17, and I'll read uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, because it summarizes a key purpose for this letter again. It says this, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for, and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, Paul was urging Timothy to uphold and teach sound doctrine to the body especially in light of the fact that there was a lot of false teaching roiling around amongst the body members. We should understand the passage today with this in firm view, with viewing it through this grid. So what is this doctrine? Some, to some, this may seem an overly academic word, somehow aligned with some legalistic view or, or religion, but that's really not the sense Doctrine is very simply what is to be believed. So we should all be about sound doctrine, should we not? 
This book, and really all of Scripture, is not about the mere understanding or acceptance, but, but belief that translates into practice. What we believe should inform and influence our conduct. And, it, and this is stated in, in chapter 3, verse 18, which is an overarching statement for, the, for Paul's purpose for even writing the book. He says this, But I am writing these things to you so that if, you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It is important to Paul and to the Lord Jesus Christ that the church be a shining example, a beautiful reflection of himself. The gospel itself is its greatest adornment. But this is tarnished if we do not conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of and consistent with his will, with his purposes, worthy and consistent with the gospel itself. We are to be a pillar and buttless of the truth, and our behavior needs to reflect that. Know this, the church holds the keys to reach the vast number of lost in our world. If our doctrine is weak or false or bad, and if our conduct is like that of the world, then we have lost our saltiness, diminished our testimony, and yielded power to the dark side. We'll never be perfect in our doctrines, in our beliefs, and in our conduct, but we must strive toward the calling. So in summary, the context says this about the passage that we're approaching today. Paul addresses, is addressing false teaching in the church, and he emphasizes the teaching of sound doctrine, and this is to have a direct influence on our conduct, and all of this, ultimately, how this relates to our great salvation in Christ. So that sets the stage for us getting started in the verses. So I'm going to go through these verses one by one, or in small groups. So let's start with verse 8. So this, this passage is really broken up into two pieces. The first part is speaking to men, one verse, and then we get four or five verses that are women. I'm not sure what that ratio says about things, right? But, but men get this one verse. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. As Pat covered last week, under the gospel, prayer is not to be confined to any one particular place of prayer, but men must pray everywhere for all kinds of people. We pray in our closets, we pray in our homes, we pray in our schools, we pray at our work. We pray in our services, we pray in our journeys. We pray in public, we pray in private. We must pray in charity without wrath or malice or anger at any person. We must pray in faith without doubting and without disputing. While women are, of course, to pray when the church meets together for worship, the instruction in verse 8 is directed at men. It is, and it is clear that this church at Ephesus was besieged with false teaching. While we do not have any of the specifics of what this false teaching was about, it likely had to do, at least in one case, that the gospel was being, being targeted to an exclusive class of people. So we are instructed earlier in the passage that Pat covered last week, and we're instructed to pray for all people. Men particularly may have been at odds with each other 
at the various, due to the various false teachings that were gaining a foothold in the church. Men were disputing and quarreling and angry with each other. So to counter this, the divisive spirit of the day, they are instructed to put aside their quarreling and their anger and disputes. The emphasis here is on the condition of their hearts, their attitudes, that their prayers would be unhindered by competition or grudges or any vain thing. Lifting up holy hands is a great posture for prayer, which symbolizes a right attitude. The open and upward hands reflecting that you're not holding on to any grievance or anger. You're open and yielding to his will as your words are ushered heavenward. Psalm 28.2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands to you towards your holy sanctuary. Men, let us join together in unity, disarmed from our petty or less, lesser differences, and join together, armed with the power of the gospel, to live our lives in such a way as to glorify and magnify the Lord and bring blessing to many, to bring blessing to those within the church, within our walls, and to, and to those who are outside who so desperately need the Lord. I love Psalm 133. Though I don't understand all the imagery here, I understand it to be beautiful. So I'll read it to you. It's probably not up here. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head that drips down, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's what I want to experience. Don't you? Wow, now the message. That's the, pa- that's the passage for men. Now the passage turns towards righteous conduct for Christian women for the rest of the chapter. And, it, and then, just so you know, to balance things out, the next chapter, chapter three, is the chapter that details, the, it's all about men. It details the qualifications for pastors and elders in the church. So I guess things do kind of sway back in the right direction, don't they? But here we are. We're going to jump into verses nine through 10. It says this, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Like the previous passage concerning men, Paul is not concerned so much about clothing and jewelry as such, right? But with the attitude, the inward attitude, the heart of the one wearing them. Inasmuch as men can be more given to competing, fighting, and disputing, so women at least women in that society, right? Apparently, were given to extravagant, extravagant or in, inappropriate dress. Some help from Peter here. So it's really interesting that the Apostle Peter has a very parallel passage, and so Peter and Paul come together with, with uh, some amazingly similar and instructive words on the matter, and here it is in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Do not let your adorning be merely external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of fine jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person 
of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is about not being conformed to the culture around us and not being a distraction or hindrance to others. It's about adorning yourselves with good works that flow from a pure heart, flowing from love, love for others, right? The gospel includes much about considering others first. If my dress is offensive or hindrance due to immodesty to others, I should change. If it is about loving and serving each other. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And men, you're not off the hook here. What we put on our bodies and how we carry ourselves reflects what is on the inside. As a people called to reflect the image of God, we should all be concerned that our appearance, far more than outer clothing, but our attitudes and actions, that these are all done for His glory and not to glorify or promote or flaunt ourselves. The command is not, this command though, is not to unduly bind us or to give occasion for us to judge each other. God forbid that. But each of us should examine our motivations in this area. We'll move on to the next set of verses. Now we're going to cover verses 11 through 14 says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Taking into account the immediate context of this passage, it is likely that this is given because of the false teachings that were roiling about. And likely it is that women were being persuaded to move from their intended, God's intended role for them into positions of authority that would have included ruling over men. Also, there's very likely, because it happened in other churches, that marriage was under assault. The teaching would, there was disparaging teaching going on in the churches against the sanctity of marriage. Another key piece of context here, and I've already mentioned it once, is that the very next chapter, that is 1 Timothy chapter 3, which you're going to hear next week, and I can't, you know, I got to mind my manners today that we don't go there because Dan's going to, or somebody's going to preach on that next week. But this is the chapter again that lays out the detail of the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. So hang on to that for just a minute. In chapter 5, verse 17, it describes two main roles for elder. So I'll go there a little bit, right? Give you a sneak peek. 517 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. In our passage in verses 11 through 12, Paul is conveying that in the church, women are not permitted to, to teach or to exercise authority over a man, as these are the very things that define the job of an elder. We saw that right there in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 17. That is, it is the pastors who exercise the leadership in the, overall govern, in the overall governing of the church, and it's the pastors who are responsible to guard and protect sound doctrine for the church. And young Timothy is getting this charge from Paul in spades. 
So in a nutshell, very simply, this passage is saying that it is not appropriate for women to be elders in the church. Now we go to look at uh, verses 13 through 14. It gives some of the reasons why. And Paul is basing his teaching on God's original order in creation by what, and by what happened at the fall. His instruction is not arbitrary and is not derived from the culture of the day. It is rooted in how God determined to order his magnificent creation. That our roles as men and women would glorify the creator of the heavens and the earth by reflecting the way he designed it. So what is the, so what is the teaching and authority that is being referred to here in our passage? Well, there's an immediate context that is in the church. So authority in the church refers to this. It refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take the primary responsibility to lead and teach in the church. Very simple. Submission in the church, context of the church, refers to the divine calling of the rest of us, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leaders and teachers, that is the elders. But also this created order applies to the family, where, where, the head, where headship is the divine calling of the husband to take the primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision in the home, and includes the call to be, to be the lead in sound doctrine, so, so that you are able to teach and demonstrate God's truths in the home. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him with her various gifts and energies. The reason this is important is that in both the case of the church and the family, Paul is basing his whole argument on that it reflect God's original order in creation. So this passage, again, God's, Paul is reinforcing God's perfect and gracious design so that his people, men and women, can live more fruitful and fulfilled lives. Now, Paul gives two reasons why men are to bear the responsibility for leadership and why women are not. One is because he created man first. In creating man first, God taught that men should take responsibility for leadership in their relationship to women, with women. I love Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and if not for time constraints and all you wanting to go to your Mother's Day celebrations, which I highly endorse, I would read these and talk about them for hours. I love these passages, but I'm going to give you a, a Reader's Digest version of what's going on in chapter 2. So in this story, man is created... And on the same day, God had given him dominion over all the animals to name them. And while he is about this first job, he likely wondered where was it is, where was his compliment? Of course, that he would see that all the animals were about him that he's naming are designed in pairs, male and female, and he likely wondered if he would forever be alone. But at the same time, when Adam was going about naming the animals, God informed Adam that it was not good for him to be alone. Then God provided the partner for him in life, one perfectly suited to him, one comparable to him, not a duplicate, 
one who would be his helper in life, one created in the very image of God and fashioned out of Adam's own body, taken directly from him. How beautiful is that? And the second why is because of the fall. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve. What a terrible failure right out of the starting gates. Adam sits by while Eve has a conversation with the devil. And he neglects his role to protect her, to watch over her. And she is duped by the wiles of the evil one and disobeys God's command. This is a failure of the design, of the divine model. The divine model is that the husband should be there to love and protect and provide for his bride, and that the bride operate in sweet concert with him and submitting to him. So we've covered that women are not supposed to teach in the church or have authority over men, and why. But what is it that they should do? Versus what is it that they shouldn't do? So we're going to go to Titus, I'm sorry, Titus 2, 3 through 5, to shed more light on this. In Titus 2, 3 through 5, which is one of my wife's favorite verses, by the way, because she based, she drew from this and established a a part of the women's ministry in our church in this, the the heart-to-heart stuff. It says this, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. So here Paul is saying that God's call calls women to be faithful, helpful wives, raising children to love and worship God and managing the household wisely. Women are to teach each other and to love their husbands and the children and have a heart for the home. This, of course, does not preclude other elements in a woman's life. Within the context of the godly model, women can be and are rock stars. Let's go to Proverbs 31. Get a taste. Proverbs 31, verses 25 through 30 says this, Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Know this, the godly woman is a beautiful adornment adornment to the gospel and will prove to be a great part of Christ's, the church's witness in a world that in need of Christ. As application, there's another side to the coin though. Men, <laughs> men should support their, their wives and their families to fulfill their divine calling to lead and teach. As far, part of the divine call on men's life, he should be the one to lead in sound doctrine, to be able to teach and demonstrate God's truth in the home. 
as a woman is not to teach or have authority over men in the church, then this necessarily says that the husband should be willing and prepared to discuss spiritual matters, scripture, and application in their home. In this, he should not be silent. Part of, the, of your role, men, is to equip your wife and your household for the many various roles and duties and ministries they are called to in the broad areas God has given for them to operate in, for all areas of their life and in the service of Christ. Now we move on to this. Are we out of, if we're out of time, we can, might not have to do this last verse. <laughs> we'll go. We'll do this. So verse 15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now much has been said of this verse through the years by various teachers and have volleyed various interpretations, most of which I find to be not so good. Fact is, we don't exactly know what Paul had in his mind when he wrote these words, but we are armed with some, with some powerful tools here today. We have the context of this passage. We have the context of the whole Bible. And we have the specific words used in this passage. So I think we're in good shape to gain a faithful understanding of what it means. A couple of meanings we need to take off the table. Women are not spiritually saved by childbearing. What about the many women who do not have children? What about the gospel? We know that Ephesians 2, 8 8 and 9 says this, and I love all of Ephesians 2. We'll just take a few of the snippet here in 8 and 9. It says, this is the very essence of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, lest anyone should boast. So that's the gospel. So there is no salvation option by simply bearing children. We also know that women are not physically saved by childbearing. Many have died in childbearing. Some people have put that out there. There's this other one. Some have purported that the save through childbearing means through the birth of the child, that is Jesus, that we are all saved because of the birth of Christ. While this may be attractive to some because there's some theological keenness to it, it simply is not faithful to the theme of Paul's letter. So a couple of things we need to point out. She likely refers to all women, women in general. The word saved in this passage here is indeed the word used in other passages for true salvation. The meaning of the word is, is, is rendered redemption from sin. So this should be how we see it. Unless there can be some other good reason uh, to, to think otherwise. The end of the passage is a reflection of a true Christian walk. The, very, the passage ends with this, and we're going to repeat this several times. If they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So we should see this passage as referring to real salvation. But what does this thing, saved through childbearing, mean? How does it apply? This passage has already related back to creation and the fall in Genesis. 
And it is in this root that we can get some of the clarity that we need for the meaning of this, this particular phrase. And we're going to go now to Genesis. Take a few small verses out. We're going to go to Genesis 3.16. And this is the curse that's being referred to in this passage. So it says here, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So childbearing, child rearing, is a specific target for the curse. And in Genesis 3.20, we also see this. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So according to his sovereign plan for the world, God established that mankind would reproduce and come into life, this life, through the woman, even all women through all the ages. And it is this magnanimous, awesome role, this role of great value, this role of fundamental to the life of the entire human race, this role that is so central to everything, it is what is cursed. It is burdened. The whole human race depends upon the lives of mothers. And now, since the fall, motherhood is now a trouble for women. To experience the pains of childbirthing and the troubles and hardship of rearing children from birth to adulthood and beyond, raising children, fallen children in a fallen world is a trial and can bring many griefs. The passage is not saying that women will be saved from this life trial. For this curse, this life trial cannot simply go away for godly women. This passage does say that they will be saved through it. It cannot be avoided. Alas, if it's not for his saving plan, for the gospel, for being saved by grace, there could be only discouragement and despair But you know this, the story does not stop there, right? This passage in the whole Bible speaks of his great plan to redeem his children for himself from the curse, to bring hope and joy and beauty that comes from being delivered through our trials. In spite of the burdens you bear as mothers while here on this earth, you have the full and sure promise of salvation. God's word to you is hope, not curse. God's plan for you is salvation, not destruction. And this is the same for all, men and women. You see, the curse for men is that all of their labors are frustrated. You see, thorns and thistles invade every area of his work. Part of the curse for women is that she will have pain in childbearing. Just as the man works out his salvation through the curse that affects his labors, the woman also works out her salvation through the pains and miseries of childbearing. The path of salvation is the same for all saints. Using our final words, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, the sting of the curse has been removed. It cannot damn us anymore. Faith in Him is the link to the Savior. 
love, holiness, and self-control are the authenticating fruits of this faith. As Christians, though we live in a fallen world and we're all fallen people and we, men and women, live under our respective curses, we are all saved by grace through faith as a gracious gift from God. And the curse has no lasting effect on us. While we now still live in this fallen world, and I'll end here, while we now live in this fallen world, we have a new life. We are being transformed and we are on a new path. And now once again, we have sweet fellowship with God by his spirit. And we have the sure promise, the sure hope that one glorious day we will be with him in eternity. And at the last day, the very vestige, every last vestige of the curse will be undone and every wound will be bound up. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word that speaks so clearly to us. God, I pray that your word would be received in the hearts of your people. And God, I thank you that you have seen fit to teach us how to conduct us ourselves as people in your, in your church. And God, that it's not about just rote activities. It is so that we reflect the very image of God, that the church being such a glorious example and shines in our world, that the, that the lost might be saved. God, that your gospel be adorned. And I pray, God, that among us here at WCC and that in your churches across the planet, that we would all join together that your gospel would truly be adorned by the things that the people think and say and do. God, that your gospel would go out unhindered and unfettered and receive and be received by many. And so God, I pray that you would uh, minister by your strength, by your power, by your Holy Spirit to each of our souls. And all those people said, amen.